Kenny, can you hear me okay there? I hear, hear you good. Thank you. Kenny, thank you for your time. But the first question I have before we plug this awesome book, not the final artwork, does anyone call you Ken or are you Kenny to everybody? No, some call me Ken, but mostly Kenny. You have to kind of graduate and know you well to become the Ken level? <laughs> uh, um, I don't know, maybe so, but, but everybody's more comfortable with Kenny. Well, there you go. And so this new book is how we connected the creative process of a book as somebody's right now writing their third book and it's painful. <laughs> it's very different than writing a song because you write a song. Sometimes it takes you five minutes. Sometimes it's weeks. It's done on to the next thing. The right. book is months and months and months, potentially. When did you start it? 2021, somewhere near the beginning. It's, it was a year of of interviews, dredging up memories, calling friends, uh, interviewing friends, uh, which we have interviews of, we can probably um, extend that out, you know, for book readers to actually see the interviews. And then finally, to, to try and start putting stuff on paper, which mm -hmm. took a whole lot longer in a way. So a very unique creative process where you actually have to look back. Did you fully enjoy that looking back or like 60% enjoy the looking back? <laughs> I said, I said to him later on, I said, the, the process of writing this book is part deposition, part, <laughs> part um, uh, therapy. Yeah. Because, you know, you have to really go and he'll, he'll say, well, why did you do that? And I suddenly have to, think about, well, why did I do that? You know, why did I jump out of that van with those kids and go to that folk club in Pasadena? Right. What was uh, it? It was some voice inside of me going, get the fuck out of here. These are not your people. <laughs> and, and I had to react to it in a way that is very unlike me to, to say, just pull over here. I'm getting out. But, you know, that was that era. And um, this, the, the process of writing this book, also, he would say to me, Jason would go, well, I understand you're explaining this as a, as a spiritual concept for you, but you contradicted it in the last chapter we worked on where you said you did it because you wanted the money or something. And I was like, well, fuck, I don't have to be consistent. <laughs> it's like sometimes yes, sometimes no. You know, it, it was a rude awakening on a number of levels. And then, and then how much to to write about my ex-wives, you know, right. how much would I put in there? How much, how, and, and we all get along, you know, we're all on peaceful terms now. Mm -hmm. Well, that is my ex-wife one and I, and my ex-wife two and I, but not ex-wife one and two. But we there, all, It's not the Rod Stewart dynamic where you see the four ex-wives next to each other. Not, not this one, no. <laughs> um, that, uh, um, how much do I write about it and, and how much do I let them in on it before I send it to the printer? Yeah. So I sent them both their chapters and got their input and, um, anything that I felt would be, um, would start world war three. I pulled out. <laughs> well, having done that much work on it, a lot of people, really, really put the power down for that first book going, hey, we got a couple hundred pages. Let's set that aside because this is a two book deal. Therefore, we have enough good leftovers. 
paired with what happened in the last few years, we got another book. In your case, could there be another book if you were happy with this, the results of this one? Nah, not, not in this way. I mean, you know, I told every story I could remember. Oh. Yeah, it's all in there. And uh, um, is there more information in the future? Well, we have to see what the future brings. In the case of Don Rickles, his first book was really his story, and the well kind of ran dry for the second book. So the second book was him just writing letters to people throughout history, like it's him writing a letter to President Lincoln. So yeah. maybe you could do that. You could write letters to co-writers. That's an interesting idea. <laughs> no, 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 that's that's horrible. Don't even appease that one. But um, besides this memoir and doing all the media behind it, you're also doing some shows live, you know, in support of it, where you're doing an intimate evening of stories and songs. And right. that's fantastic because you're one of these artists who we know all the songs. We know, hey, that's Kenny Loggins. But we never really knew much about you, the person. You always maintain that mystique. Uh, was that always by design, the mystique? No, I think it was just a bad publicist. <laughs> uh, no, that... Um, yeah, I guess I didn't go very public with my story. Um, I didn't even, I didn't understand the value of it. Um, and so as I started telling stories in concert, mm -hmm. I found that the, my audience enjoyed the stories as much as the music. Mm -hmm. And I think that was really what opened me up to the idea of writing a book. That makes sense to me. And the book talks about the creative process, the co-writes, your troubles. We really do get a look into who you are. But one of my favorite things about you is you're maybe the most accidental publishing success story there is. You know, my, my assumption is when they said, hey, do you want to write this song for this movie? You thought, okay, some upfront cash, that'll be good visibility, but you weren't thinking publishing. I'm curious when in your career you started to understand publishing and back catalog and how that could sustain you. Oh, it's been about five, six years or more. You know, it was when I, when I had no money coming in, certainly 2020, I lived off the publishing. Mm -hmm. For me, the book was about my legacy and um, getting one good chance to tell my story. And in particular, you know, you, the money that you make is, is not paying for your time to do this kind of a job. No, once you do the press, it's like a dollar an hour that you it's put horrible. into this whole thing. It's horrible. And, yeah. but, but it is, when I say my legacy, I'm talking about family. Yeah. You know, what was dad doing while I was growing up? <laughs> and then, and the different ways that I relate to them throughout their lives, you know, and that they relate to me. Um, so for me, it was more like a family piece that I just wanted to get out there so that they would have another level of understanding. What happened to dad and mom? What happened to how did dad become a star? You know, you know, why did I feel like he wasn't home for periods of time? You know, all that Willie Loman stuff. Well, I've got three quick topics, questions, and then I'm going to let you go because the whole world wants to speak to Kenny Loggins today. That, that cannot be denied. Uh, and the first one is, with the number of songs that you've put out over the years, it's not 20. It's a, it's a lot of music. But for you to put out a song, around how many songs were written to get there? Are you, is it like one for every three or is it one for one? 
Um, usually one for one. Um, that I will file on it. You know, we write the song and I'll file it down and maybe dump a section or add a section like Conviction of the Heart. One with the Earth with the Sky was written the next day. Uh, but they usually come out of a, a one day of writing and then we demo it and then fine tune the demo. You can see like a song like I Gotta Try, which Michael McDonald and I wrote together, his approach versus my approach. Right. Um, I heard it as a more aggressive four tops kind of approach and his was much more laid back, like maybe five years before that era, you know. Uh, so, you know, had I had I had the time because I was making a record that had to come out, but had I had the time to study a little more of what he was doing, I probably would have sat mine back a little and borrowed from where he'd taken his, you know, because we, we both said, well, our deal is we write together and then whoever gets there first gets the first shot at it. Mm -hmm. So there was a little bit of a race to get it to get it and captured the way I imagined it. And um, I would I would have loved the ultimate result to be more of a combination of the two approaches. Um, because uh, I wish Michael's had been a little more aggressive and I wish mine had been a little more laid back. Hmm. So, you know, that would be an easy thing to to create once we're once we see it in the lens. Well, that smoothness flows into my second of three here. And that's, I'm sure you don't like hearing the term yacht rock, but I'm curious when it went from being, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard to, oh, you know what? It's, it's fine. It's okay. Let the people laugh. And it's a serious XM channel and it keeps my name out there. Like when exactly did that happen? Uh -huh. I'm hating yacht when rock. When I accepted yacht rock, well, certainly before Daryl Hall did. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I just saw it. My kids came and showed it to me on the internet originally, and I thought it was pretty stupid. But, you know, I could see that there was some humor in that. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, but I didn't expect it to continue to actually become a genre of its own. And I think looking back on it, we, I always say we didn't realize we were creating a new genre. We were following that, that, that spark that was definitely R&B derived. Yeah. And to lean more into a, a jazzier R&B stuff. And, and as I got closer to that, then I'm, then I'm working with a lot of the New York guys. Mm -hmm. You know, Steve Gadd, Eric Gale, Bob James, that they play it, they lay it down completely different. And it's not footloose back then. Right. It's heart to heart, it's something simpler. I had Bob James and I wrote the chorus of Heart to Heart, but we didn't have a verse. And, and to answer your question, a couple of weeks later, we got in to LA and I went over to Michael's, showed him what I had and I said, just start freeforming verses, what do you got? And the, one of the very first things, within 10 minutes, he had that dun, 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 which is very Michael. It's very, yeah. that bluesy Ray Charles era. And, um, and so there you've got a song that took a few weeks to write because we had to meld those two styles. Michael and I co-wrote a song years later called uh, It's About Time. And I really wanted Tommy Johnson to write the verses with me because Michael and Tommy never put their styles together. Mm -hmm. And I can hear that Tommy is influenced by 
an era of rock and roll that's just almost right next to where Michael's in, influenced by. You know, Tommy's more Aretha Franklin and Michael's more Ray Charles or mm -hmm. or Four Tops. And uh, and I thought I'd love to be the guy to get these two writers to meld something that would be different from anything else. But Tommy wasn't open to that at the time. The last thing before I let you go here, you said Pasadena before, you said Michael McDonald. The book I'm solely writing is about David Lee Roth and Michael co-wrote I'll Wait, which was on the Van Halen album, 1984. And that was because the Ted Teppelman connection. Uh -huh. Did you almost work with Van Halen in any facet because you know you you were one degree removed in that whole world. That's funny. I'd never thought of it that way. No, you know, because you know Roth was at Pasadena City College, right? Yes. You spent some time there. Um, no, I I think my take on them was they were trying really hard to be Led Zeppelin, and uh, and that was not the direction that I was going in. I love some of the stuff, but it was I was not imagining that I would be ever be in Led Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. But the bottom line is thank you for the many years of great music. Your name is said regularly in this this household. Uh all the time the only password the only logins you need is Kenny, etc. Whatever it is. All, right, Keep right. Up all the greatness. Thank you for your time. All right. Thank you. Outrocast. Hey, aside from having to talk to press today, how's your day going? Oh, it's it's good. It's been uh, nice and busy, but in a very nice and positive way. So all good. It must be confusing for you in a way because you've worked so much over the last four or five years. A lot of actors, it's kind of like one movie a year, you like three, four big things a year, a couple of TV pilots, a couple of things you can't talk about it. But White Elephant is the new project. When did you actually film it? Who knows anymore? <laughs> I'm like, I remember it was, you know, uh, somewhere uh, either before or after COVID. No, no, no. It was, it was actually last year, uh, a little more than a year from now. And uh, I just remember it was, it was such a, such a nice, nice, beautiful project to just be in. And uh, I, I, I really enjoyed it. What a cast. I mean, besides you, Michael Rooker, Bruce Willis, Olga, Malkovich yeah did, did you know all these people were involved when you were casting the film that's a that's a good question because I did not I, I actually I did the casting I thought it was a good project just because I, I really I had been wanting to do like an action film something uh, crazy like that and uh, they liked my casting and then the director just kind of uh, saw some projects that I was on he kind of just still like liked me for the role and then uh, we went for lunch just to keep talking about the project and Jesse the director he has a very thick accent and uh once I get to know a person then I, I, I get to pick up the way they talk and then I, I understand him fully but at first in that meeting I literally understood like 20 percent of what he was telling me <laughs> so I remember just hearing him say a bunch of stuff about the movie and then I just heard like Bruce Willis but I wasn't sure so that I had to leave that meeting and talk to my manager and once he uh, uh, checked with him, first he learned that I, I made it and like he, he liked me for the role and I was in. And second, he told me about the cast and I was like, what the, what, <laughs> what are you talking about? So it was, it was a nice surprise. Well, you've had success in both English language projects and Spanish language projects. And a lot of people who would have success in the Latin American world, 
the Central American world, they would just say, that's it. I'm going to stay with that. And now I can vacation in Europe and the United States to be anonymous. You made the decision to become a global star. When was it that you decided, hey, English language projects are something I want to do? Well, I, I did my, uh, I've been acting since I was six, right, and in, in Spanish, uh, and I did my high school in the U.S., and I, I just kind of um, got better in, in the language in general, and I just thought, I, like, I have the tool that I can use, and I'm an actor, like, why not try out for other things that, you know, are like, I can do it English. So uh, I think it was about five years ago that I decided to just move to LA and, and take the risk and, and try it. And it's been a it's been a journey. It's been a challenge, and uh, I've really enjoyed it. But it's also been very like nerve wracking because you know you don't know in this career what's going to happen. You know, it's lots of lots of ups and downs, and and years that nothing happens, and then suddenly everything just is happening. And uh, that's what I'm that's what I'm hoping that this will be like that snowball that just keeps. Uh, growing and pulling other like work in and just keep uh, kind of accomplishing my my dreams and keep working on other projects and, and genres that will be uh, appealing and attractive to me and to like the people that follow me so I'm just uh, I'm just excited that it's, it's it's slowly happening so yeah and so White Elephant is the latest project that you're allowed to talk about or supposed to be talking about it uh, I, 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 can, I can share more than that yeah so I'll, I'll <laughs> Was it one of the easier ones to work on or one of the harder ones? I'm not talking about, did you have a good time? But the role, yeah. was it more challenging and did it require more prep than your average role? I think I, I mean, I did before this when I did the seventh day with Guy Pierce, and I actually put a lot of more, uh, I think acting work into that character just because it's like this like very troubled priest that had to deal with a lot of like internal stuff. So I definitely remember having a lot of like acting work on that one. Uh, maybe there's something concerning about that, that I, I get to have a little more of an easier time playing a psycho killer in this one. But uh, I definitely worked with Jesse on the tone that he wanted for, for this and everything. And I think the work on this one came more from the stunt part of it right like all the gun training the knife fighting and like you know fist fighting with like people and uh really getting it to a point where you can tell that this guy has been doing this for years mm -hmm. uh so so that was very exciting to do but that was that was definitely a challenge it's cool to see that you can do this kind of role but you could also be in the adaptation of 51st dates a movie that we really like in this household but you can do the comedy you can do the drama you can do the thriller when you started out as a six-year-old obviously you weren't thinking about what kinds of roles you wanted to do but once you knew hey i'm a career actor did you have a specific genre that you wanted to focus on i mean it, it took me like 19 20 years to like truly set myself aside from all that soap opera and like comedy like skit world uh and and really be like i want to focus on on, on movies and like like tv shows you know like tv shows now are big but when i started doing it it was you know it was, it was a growing thing like right. in the beginning so uh i guess part of me was just thinking I'll, I'll take anything as long as it takes me into that like route and then comedy started to be the thing that it just kind of pulled me into that and i love doing comedy I, I really enjoyed it uh actually one of the projects that i just finished doing that i can talk about um 
to a movie called Love is Love, and I did it with Rob Schneider, and he's oh. directing, he's acting in it. So it's full comedy with that kind of like comedy that he has been doing for years. So it was very silly, very stupid, very freaking funny. Um, and, but I, right now, I kind of want to keep doing comedy, but stray away a little bit and and pursue things that I've never done before. I would love to do something that is like more medieval. I would love to do something that also has action, but has more like CGI to it. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Uh, superhero stuff or whatever. I would love to do something more uh, like real, not that this is not real, but like, you know what I mean? Like yeah, Oscar stuff, like, like a green book kind of movie or, or something like that. I don't know. It sounds like, everything except musical theater you know what I, i'm a singer and i'm a musician so i definitely want to do something that has to do with music i did a yep. series just recently called mariachi that has acting and then like singing involved with it and it was it was very fun to do but uh a theater i've done theater and i've done musical theater and uh it's very fun but right now there's so much going on that i want to do that i feel theater you have to really kind of like stop your life for a few months and commit yeah. but that first look deal that you have with pantaya it sounds like the projects are coming to you from there besides what your agents are bringing in so we really don't know what's going to come next from you and it's kind of a beautiful thing so yeah last question i have because you just alluded to your musical roots who were the bands or the artists that made you want to become a musician in the first place well my my mom is a singer and uh well, was, I guess, you yeah, haven't done it in, a, in quite a few years, but I grew up full of music around the house, watching her on stage. So that definitely had a big influence on me. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember her playing a lot of like Ricky Martin and like, you know, people like that. We know um, um, a lot of like jazz and stuff like that. Like actually one one of the things that I'm doing like with music is is to also have like that R&B kind of like style and and play with like uh mixing different genres but like mm -hmm. kind of sticking to that like always having like jazzy things like sax and metal and like all that all those things so uh, uh i don't know and like modern influences i mean i always love justin timberlake bruno mars is amazing uh, people like the weekend beyond so like you know like all these like huge commercial stars that have made such an impact i, I really love um so I don't know, there's a little bit of everything uh, in, in my my music career, but yeah, I just, well, I just, I'm just very passionate about music, so. We're gonna have to guess on that one too, but the bottom line is congratulations. I'm sorry, I, I know I'm all over the place. <laughs> in the best of ways, you're always challenging yourself and that's an admirable trait. So thank you for your time and really looking forward to the next project, whatever it is. Thank you, man, I appreciate it. Hi, Jim. Uh, Dan Paltrowitz, and thank you very much for putting on this wonderful event. Quick two-parter for you. The first one is as an icon uh, to the people of the state of Indiana. I was wondering if you had any memorabilia from Bloomington, Indiana's David Lee Roth in your collection. And the second one is you mentioned Tom Petty a second ago. We see George Harrison and Bob Dylan guitars on the wall there. Who's your favorite traveling group? That's a great question. Well, first, you know, the first question, um, you know, I, I don't have any, um, uh, you know, David Lee Roth uh, or, or anything like that. Um, you know, I have Jim Morrison's microphone. Um, 
but uh, he's not from Indiana, he's not from this planet, he wasn't from this planet. You know, but, but, but really, um, you know, I, I'd say that my biggest connection is with his old boss and Mike Wanchek's old boss, uh, John Mellencamp. You know, John's not here tonight, but John's a really close friend. And uh, I was texting him tonight, and you know, he's really close to Bob Dylan, and I've got a chance for years to know uh, Bob as much as anyone can know Bob Dylan. Um, uh, but Bob's a great gentleman, and we saw him uh, in Bloomington when he came through it, touring at 80 uh, just, um, you know, about six months ago. So, so really on the Traveling Wilburys question, you know, that's a hard, hard one. Um, you know, I have to say Dylan, um, because I'm such a Dylan guy, but, you know, we really, really, really miss Tom Petty. I mean, Can I go behind um, He is so loved and so missed, um, you know, that it's just, uh, you know, it, it kind of hurt us all um, that, to have that wise voice. He was so wise and intuitive and just had a sixth sense that just made him so incredible. And, we're doing a song of his tonight, actually, um, uh, and it means a lot, um, you know, to do a song of his because he was, you know, really one of the greatest songwriters ever. I mean, of course, you have Dylan and Lennon and Johnny Cash and those things, but then, you know, when you get, in, you know, with Springsteen or Petty, I mean, you know, it's it's hard to um, separate. Uh, they really elevate up there. And, and Tom is, is, is so missed and so incredible. But, you know, I would say, uh, you know, of course, I, you know, I don't remember too long, but I love George Harrison a lot. You know, George was a very interesting man, and, and uh, um, the Beatles would not have been the Beatles without him. You know, he was special, and uh, probably my second favorite Beatle, even though I love Paul so much, and of course, Ringo, so, um, so that would probably be on the Outrocast. The Zappa band. Um, how long was this tour in the works for? Because I remember you'd done that Nam show where it was a Zappa tribute. You've been involved in stuff over the years, but this particular tour is new ground. Um, well, you know, the, this this uh, this group of players uh, uh, that are in this Zappa band uh, were essentially, you know, it was it was slightly different. But we started playing in early 2019, I guess which is uh, when we did the, the Bizarre World of Frank Zappa tour. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was, you know, connected to all these visuals and all this technology and stuff. It was very uh, involved and very expensive <laughs> to move yeah. around. But, uh, you know, the, the band, just as a band, definitely, you know, it was, it was obvious to all of us that it had a life of its own, including uh, Amit, who, you know, conceived of the, the Bizarre World tour and, and sort of formed us specifically for that. But then we just started booking, you know, with, with Amos Blessing, we started booking shows at the Big Potato in L.A. And he came out to see that and he said, oh, this is, you know, this is the thing all about just you guys on a stage playing these songs is a thing that deserves to, to thrive. So then there was a pandemic and nobody played for a while. Um, there still is, but, uh, you know, now we're out of lockdown for whatever mutually shared um, illusory reason we've all decided it's okay to go outside again and uh and we're uh and so we're last year the first thing that that any of us did coming out of lockdown was to open for king crimson on on what turned out to be likely their last u.s tour so that was the first time we were actually 
on the road and able to kind of get a rhythm going from night to night and sort of start becoming a band, uh, you know, uh, with with its own identity. Um, but we were also uh, we were limited by the amount of time we could play every night because we were the opening act and it had to be if we went a second over forty five minutes they would unceremoniously toss us off the stage so uh, right. we and we had to play the same show every night in order to keep it exactly at 45 minutes if we if we experimented with the set list things could just go spinning off the axis so we this will be you know in the, in june this month uh, will be the first time that we're the headlining band on a tour you know it's still only a two-week tour but that's enough time to get in some gigs you know gig after gig after gig where we're playing essentially two hours every night and and really there's no substitute for that you know in terms of a band becoming a band outrocast <laughs>